Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For For Chemist Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Denderen shortly and during the show we'll be joined by our 250 game veteran of the Victorian Premier League and former Notts County man Dean Hennessy and our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson. And after the incredible winning season, the reputation ceiling title win in the J-League by Ange Postacoglu in 2019, since taking the helm at Yokohama F Marinos, Kevin Musket looks like he's taking the tricolour on a similar run. J-League journo Sean Carroll will join us from Tokyo to have a look at how the story is evolving and whether Muskie can take the Marinos all the way. And on the other end of the scale, despite a midweek League Cup thrashing of the baggies, Arsenal are in a world of pain, coming off a brace of losses to start the Premier League season. The pressure doesn't ease this weekend with an assignment against the Premier's Manchester City at the Etihad. The Athletics' James McNicholas will join us to get a view from ground zero on whether there is any hope of Mikel Arteta turning things around or is his time at the Gunners going to be cut short and will continue to lead up to the A-League season as we wrap up the hour to talk to Adelaide United veteran Craig Goodwin committed to the club for the coming season after joining midway through the comp last time. In the second hour, Willem will kick off with second edition news and in a topic that will be a thread throughout the second hour, the Guardian's Philippe Auclair joins us to have a look at League One from Messi's arrival at PSG to the disgraceful scenes at the Nice-Marseille derby last weekend. More Premier League with Dino and Dell, and we'll wrap it up with a bit of a feature on uh, on derbies in stoppage time, some of the better derbies as opposed to the disgrace at Nice Edge. Um, that was a pretty ordinary uh, set of uh, of uh, vision that we saw come out of that game, but um, you know the uh, League One has got a, a long way to come before it gets to the stage that the Premier League has in, in, in getting the hooligans out of the game. Uh, interesting. It's quite an interesting derby, that one, and I'm looking forward to talking to Philippe Auclair about that, but Marseille, the bad boys, of French football, they may have um, um, they may get a leave pass for this one. Once we delve into the depths of what's going on, Nice itself is a club that's uh, making a move in uh, in League One. So um, I'm really looking forward to that discussion. But hello to the listeners right around Australia and overseas. If you're watching to uh, listening to Box to Box, um, we've got some big news. Premier League looks like blocking international players from playing in the international window. La Liga's joined that. So FIFA. And uh, the European, um, big powerful European leagues seem to be uh, crossing swords at the moment, Willem. They do, Michael. But before we get there, I did want to start this week over in Japan. Not often we do that, but Kevin Muskett's Yokohama F Marinos are just one point off top spot with 12 matches to play. The Marinos have won five of their last six under Muskett, scoring 21 goals in the process, while leaders Kawasaki have gone winless in three. Upcoming games against Kashima and Nagoya will prove if Muskett's side are the real deal. We'll also ask Sean Carroll if that's the case. But anyone who has been watching these matches, and even Kevin himself, admitted that this still very much is Ange Postacoglu's side. But Rob, in management, there is an art at times in not doing too much. Just realise you're on a good wicket and uh, tweak and adjust things as required. Don't need to uh, rip the whole thing down to the ground. No, well, uh, I guess Muskie came so... uh Highly recommended um, that um, he, uh, as he said, the uh, Postacoglu fingerprints are all over Marinos. So, so why would you make significant changes? But then again, you know he's got to uh, to get the momentum going in the right direction. And uh, I mean, these fourteen goals in three games, and I mean, you, you can't count for what's happened to Kawasaki. But um, but once the momentum shifts, it's very hard to turn back, isn't it? 
Certainly is. Back home now, Football Australia has secured Commonwealth Bank as the naming rights partner of the Matildas, Junior Matildas and Young Matildas for the next four years. CBA is now the largest investor in Australian women's football, with millions to be injected into both the elite and grassroots level. The deal will see CBA partner with the Mini Roos program and cover the 2023 Home World Cup. And I suppose, Michael, you could say that this is a flow-on of, of winning the bid, not just uh, the small sort of uh, sponsors that they've been able to secure around the periphery of the game, but big corporate dollars as a naming rights partner. Yes, and uh, considering the popularity of the Matildas, Willem, um, and obviously securing the Women's World Cup, some of those big broadcast numbers. Uh, the CBA signed on before the Olympic Games um, uh, earlier this year, so this is a, a bit of an anniversary and uh, the announcement of their beginning of a four-year relationship. But uh, what did Bill Hayden say, Rob? You could, uh, um, um, I think, a, a drover's The famous dog story about the drover's dog, yes, of course, when he was uh, uh, gazumped by Bob Hawke in the lead-up to uh, That's right. the, the federal election all those years ago when he was asked, do you think you would have won the election? He said the drover's dog would have won that election. Well, it's a bit like um, if uh, the Football Australia would have been in all sorts of trouble if they couldn't have landed a big super fish in the world of sponsorship. So mm-hmm. they've done that. Congratulations. Uh, I understand it's a very good deal. And um, a CBA, uh, they're very, very welcome uh, in football and will enjoy uh, the investment into, into the women's game. And uh, hopefully they get a great ride. To A-League News, Bessar Barisha has been unable to reach a deal with Melbourne Victory and will head to Germany seeking a final season as a player. 36-year-old Barisha was released by Western United last month after 26 goals in 50 games, which took his Australian tally to 142. Barisha has made no secret of his desire to coach and live in Australia post-Korea, although he now returns to where he was raised. And he might just settle over there, guys. You never know. Maybe the family won't fancy another move all the way back over to this side of the world. Uh, And you hope, Rob, that we haven't lost him because he has been the best of the A-League. And our league owes him a lot in many ways for coming over to the little old A-League and treating it like it was the most important thing in the world. He, uh, as I said, the best of, uh, of our league. Yeah, look, uh, Borussia, for for so many reasons, from his time at the Raw to victory and obviously Western United, that uh, he, he's been a charismatic character, hasn't he? He's been a goal scorer for, and, and, and a player that was just right at the level for the A-League. So, you know, it's disappointing to see him go. But to be honest, well, I'm, I mean, I don't know how much gas there is left in the tank after this uh, uh, potential season that he has in, in Germany. Uh, we'd love to see him come back uh, uh, as, a, as a character within the game, perhaps uh, in a coaching role, but I don't know that there's another club uh, uh, contract for, for him left in, in the A-League. No, there's definitely not. I think, Michael, that um, they were thinking about maybe Melbourne victory, but Bezard is not the type of character who would have been happy to say, I'll play a supporting role uh, play a supporting role off the bench, but you hope that he can return in a coaching capacity because those instinctive sort of cutthroat strikers don't come along too often, especially not in the Australian game. Oh, he stands up against any uh, striker that's been in the National League, NSL era and A-League era. So he's a fantastic player. He's getting a bit long in the tooth, Willem. So I can understand clubs potentially uh, not, um, you know, passing on the opportunity to sign him because he would have wanted a, a significant salary probably. So this is probably best for Bessart uh, in his short-term career. But he's an Australian now and uh, no doubt he'll be back at some point. And we'd love to see him uh, on the A-League sidelines coaching at some point. He... He'd make for an entertaining body language on the side of the pitch, Willem. <laughs> Would he ever. Uh, overseas now, World Football Players Union FIFPRO has thanked the Australian government for evacuating over 50 Afghan footballers and athletes this week. FIFPRO and FIFA penned letters calling for international assistance after last week's Taliban takeover of Kabul. 
FIFPRO have since acknowledged Craig Foster and Kurt Fernley for their lobbying of the Australian government over the matter. And well done to Soccer Scenes, Matthew Badrov for covering this one uh, across the past week as well. Uh, Rob, Australia's refugee policy will, of course, divide opinion. In my opinion, this is probably the least that we could have done as an international citizen and still plenty to be done. Yeah, there's plenty to be done. The entire world community um, needs to uh, to contribute here. And uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree that it's the least that we could do, but it is a high profile thing to do. And um, and particularly for some of the most vulnerable people uh, in that uh, society, um, we've uh, we've managed to get involved and get them out. It's good to see uh, that uh, that high profile sports people are lending their voice and, and making a difference. New Zealand football is considering dropping the national team nickname of the All Whites due to concerns of racial connotations. The nickname was adopted in reference to the All Blacks, of course, the uh, the Kiwi Rugby Union team, ahead of the football side's first World Cup campaign in 1982. At that point, the football side wore black shorts but dropped them for an all-white strip. New Zealand legend Winton Rufer of Maori descent believes the name holds no racial significance and that the various derivatives of the uh, the names that uh, New Zealand's national teams use shows inclusivity and unity. Michael, you can see why the New Zealand Football Federation might have wanted to get ahead of the curve and, and jump on this one before someone could consider them racist, but they received a, a heck of a lot of pushback and I don't think we'll be seeing a change in the next little while at least. Well, I hope not because Winton Rufer, if anyone... Um, has an authoritative position on that issue. It's him, uh, arguably New Zealand's greatest ever player and uh, of Mary descent. So um, he's uh, quite rightly, um, he's quite rightly called it out as uh, being non-racial. And um, yeah, it's just a bit of an odd one for me. Um, I understand why New Zealand football's gone down this path and uh, the significance of New Zealand culture in and around uh, the the coexistence of... um, um, migrants in New Zealand and the traditional Maori culture. It's very, very strong and I can understand where they're coming from. But for me, the All Whites is a great, uh, it's a great nickname for that team. It was, I think, established in the 1980s and, um, and it's, a good, um, it's a good parlay into the All Blacks, isn't it? Because uh, of New Zealand's national colours, white and black, and, and they are the two biggest sports in that, uh, in that country. And Rob's probably going to say rugby league's bigger than football, but I would say, no, nah, you're wrong. Yeah. No, no, no. I don't think I would, and and I, I agree with you. It's, uh, um, you know, look, uh, I, I subscribe to change where it's required, and, and it's not always the case uh, that um, that a, a sporting team's nickname um, needs to stay just because there's history behind it. Um, we look at the American sports, uh, a lot of change over there, but uh, but in this instance, when when you do have the counterweight of the All Blacks name, and there's no way in the world that's going to change, um, provided that it's obvious and clear that the derivation of the All Whites had no racial context whatsoever, and we understand that that is a fact, uh, and Winton River, as you say, has called it out, then uh, it, it seems to be you know a little bit too woke for, for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure Donald Trump would uh, would agree with the the change. The woke, the woke man, uh, him, the woke police himself. Uh, and a last one. Speaking of the US, their Department of Justice is set to return 201 million US dollars to FIFA that it seized during its 2015 corruption probe. The money was seized from bank accounts of 50 defendants prosecuted during the trial. Under US law, the Department of Justice can distribute these funds to victims as they see fit. As a football organisation, defrauded uh, FIFA is considered a victim in this instance. The money will go to the FIFA Foundation to be used in football-related projects. So, Rob, that's a win for the cash-strapped good guys at, uh, at head office in Zurich. 
Yeah, I know the irony, as you say, cash strap, but a quarter of a billion dollars back in the coffers, provided that it goes to the right people uh, from the rorters that were involved in all of that, then uh, that can only be a good thing. All right, well, um, well done, uh, Kay. Stick around. After the break, we're going to talk to Sean Carroll. Just amazing, Kevin Muscat. Uh, he left the victory on a downer. He went over to Europe, didn't quite work out for him over there. Ange Postacoglu moves to Celtic. Yokohama F. Marinos opens up. We cross our fingers. I hope it's going to work out for him. And boy, isn't it working out. We'll talk to Sean Carroll after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box on 9 Radio NTS News Talk Sport. Now, who would have thought after... The heroics of Ange Postacoglu in 2019. He's earned uh, the big job in Europe and doing wonderful things at Celtic. But uh, he's put in a good word for his old mate Kevin Muscat. And now Muskie has got uh, the Marinos on an incredible run over the past few weeks. 14 goals. They're a point behind Kawasaki. Just behind them on top of the J-lead ladder. And to talk about it, freelance football journalist from Tokyo, Sean Carroll. How are you, Sean? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you guys? Yeah, not at all, mate. And uh, so the last time we spoke to you, uh, Ange Postacoglu was on his his mighty run. Uh, um, so uh, obviously his uh, reputation carried a massive amount of sway to get Kevin Musket appointed. Uh, before we go into the influence of Musket since he's arrived, uh, uh, was uh, was there much an, um, uh, concern in the football community in Japan, particularly around the, the Marinos, uh, as to whether this was just crossing your fingers and hoping that another Aussie could get the job done or or was there expectation that Musket you know had the goods uh, and uh, and might be able to do what he has actually done um yeah I think there was obviously because of the the job that Ange had done you know when when a coach who's been that successful does leave there's always a a fear that the results are going to drop off that the things will start tumbling down obviously people knew that that Kevin Muscat had done well following in in Angie's footsteps when he was in in Melbourne with the victory, so they knew there was that. But obviously, since then, he as you as you mentioned, I think earlier, he'd kind of struggled a bit with his his uh, stint in Europe, and there was an element of you know maybe, and it does sometimes happen in Japan. Or you see it with quite a few clubs where they they have an identity of sticking with with Brazilian coaches or having German coaches, and then they kind of just feel like that that going with the nationality means you'll have that consistency. So there was a slight concern maybe that they were just sort of yeah like you said hoping that that it would uh it would continue well um but yeah six games in five wins one draw and they're now only one point off the top it, it couldn't really have gone much better for him and we talked off the top of the show uh, about Ange's fingerprints, as Muskie said, uh, being all over the club. As uh, I hope you're uh, behaving yourself there, mate. Sounds like the police are coming to get you. <laughs> sure, but, uh, <laughs> Nothing um, to do with me, I assure you. Uh, all good. Okay, we're safe. Um, so that uh, he's arrived at the at the club, and um, and and do you get a sense from from the game style that you've seen that he he's uh, not made any significant changes, just uh, just more of the same in the early stages? Yeah, it does seem to be. Um, I, I'd have to admit, I didn't really know much about his style. I knew, obviously, that Ange was, was very particular about the way he, he played. Obviously, I knew about the way Muscat had played when he was a player. And um, obviously, he was known as being quite a, um, how should we put it, enthusiastic mm-hmm. player. Yes, brutal might be another <laughs> word. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I wasn't really sure how how that would transition into in sort of how he coached his teams. But, yeah, thus far, he's... Um, He's pretty much stuck to the to the instructions that the team were playing. They're playing very attacking football, keeping the ball, looking to move it around quickly, getting behind, using the 
the pace and the the kind of skill that they've got in their their forward players, sort of a wide array of forward players. Um, and yeah, they've um, it's you know, it's not even really a honeymoon period. They've just they've just carried on from from the way they were playing under Ange. They're I think they're thirteen games unbeaten now. They've only lost twice all season. Uh, one of which was on the opening day against Kawasaki, and that was that was way back when. Um, so yeah, it's as you said, it hasn't. Nothing's really changed so far. It's just keep doing what they were doing. Sean, what about um, um, the Japanese football community and their um, acceptance of foreign coaches uh, here in Australia in our own uh, professional league, the A League? There is a uh, an undertone amongst uh, people in the community and fans in particular that they want Australian coaches to be given an opportunity. Does that exist in Japan as well? Um, are foreign coaches um, received uh, with open arms? Do they get less of a... Um, is there less patience around foreign coaches or is it uh, just part and parcel of the league that there's going to be foreign coaches? Yeah, it's not It's not really an issue here at all. It never really raises its head. I mean, if a coach is doing well... The fans don't care if they're if they're Japanese, if they're Brazilian, if they're Australian. As if the team's doing well and the coach is is doing well and the coach is is putting the effort in, um, the fans are pretty much happy. I think obviously that comes from there was, you know, when when the J League started back in in the early nineties, it came from no professional football. So a lot of the early days was bringing in foreigners to help them lay the foundations and show them what was needed to be professional. Obviously the likes of Zico and whatever always get, get thrown around as examples. And I think that that still continues now that the Japanese people within football, and I think in a wider, in a cultural sense, they're, they're always kind of willing. Um, okay. Maybe it does depend on which countries. If you, if you had a coach coming in, maybe from a, I don't know, Southeast Asia or somewhere, there might be a bit more skepticism as you know is he is he good enough for for this level but i think when you've got coaches coming in that have have done things abroad as well um the fans are, are always willing the players initially um are always willing to to take things on board and and see how they can improve um so yeah there's not really an issue in that respect obviously fans like to have local coaches if you can have a you know a former player a club legend whatever but i think that's probably true all around the world that that those guys maybe get a little bit more, a little bit more patience. But no, there's no real kind of anti-foreigner um, sentiment when it comes to managers over here. This is Box to Box. We're talking to Japanese football journalists on the J League. Kevin Musk are doing great things at Yokohama F Marinos. Sean Carroll, tell us more, mate. Um, Sean, obviously, um, speaking of foreigners, Mitch Langerak, uh, his team, Nagoya Grampus, up to fourth on the table. He's had an extremely good run. Um, uh I think it's 16 clean, uh, 16 clean sheets out of the last uh, 20 games, I believe it is. So um, just tell us about um, how he's going. He's been an incredible player for Nagoya Grampus and just continues to build his reputation. And we all know that um, Japanese fans in particular have a very special relationship with goalkeepers that do well. Yeah, he's done really, really, really well. I think a lot of it is rooted in the fact that um, he's a... He's a very serious guy about what he's doing. I think you you sometimes get foreign players come here and it's they're winding down their careers and it's just sort of one last payday or they they think that the league is not that higher level and they'll just come and and wind down slowly and uh, and pick up the paycheck. But um, I've spoken to Mitch a fair few times, um, did one pretty long interview with him about his time here for a for a book I'm working on and and it really shone through that that he's taking it very seriously and he's he's here 
um, for the long haul. He's here to to be successful and to do well. Um, and yeah, his results on the pitch, he, he set a record last year for the number of clean sheets, which I think was 17. Um, and yeah, as you said, he's up to almost that again now already. And there's still, I think, 12 games to play. So he's well on course to uh, to break that. And I think he could even do it in the next game coming up this weekend. Um, so yeah, very popular, um, really nice guy. And yeah, as I said, just he's taking it seriously. And I think that shines through. And that obviously is what has sort of laid the blocks for him to do so well. It would be remiss of us not to ask you to comment just on the Olympic football events that have uh, just gone by. I'm sure that you um, enjoyed the festival of football that was in Japan. But, Sean, uh, just for the home nation, Japan, in the men's and women's, they performed pretty well. But did they meet the expectations of what uh, the home fans um, expected? Um, and we know that, obviously, football is such a massive sport in Japan. That there would have been a massive focus on the, on those two teams. Yeah, I think the men's team was pretty much par. Um, it was obviously disappointing that they, they weren't able to get a medal in the end. I think before the tournament, when you were looking at the the teams that were here, um, the men, it was always going to be a tall order. Um, and they took Spain very, very close in the in the semi-final, conceding right at the end of, of extra time, which was a which was a really big blow. And I don't really think they got over that. The the third place match, the bronze game against Mexico, they were they were out on their feet pretty much from kickoff. You could see that they were just exhausted, I think, physically and mentally. So it was disappointing in the end. But I think before the competition, if you know, if someone had said that they'll they'll finish fourth, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been too surprised at that. Um, the women was was disappointing. People expected more of them. Obviously, it's a while now since they won the World Cup and and did well, and they got silver in in London in twenty twelve. But it, it was a shame. You know, they'd been building up for this for a long time. The coach had really been focusing on on this home Olympics and getting a medal and they just never really clicked into gear. They looked, they looked kind of a bit too conservative. They weren't really taking the risks that they needed to They're They're kind of skillful, creative players seem to be, to be on a leash somewhat. Um, and yeah, they never really got going. And then once they came up against, um, against Sweden in the, I think it would have been the quarterfinal, right? Yeah. First one after the group. So it never looked like they were going to get past Sweden. Sweden, obviously a really, really strong team as, as you guys will know from, from the semi-final against against the Matildas, so yeah, Japan was a bit disappointing. Um, but yeah, I think the men was par, and the the women probably could have done a bit better if they'd if they'd thrown a bit more caution to the wind. Excellent analysis, thank you, Sean. Well, thanks for joining us uh, to cover you know a, a wide spectrum of uh, football in in Japan. But uh, obviously, off the top, our uh, our focus on Kevin Musket and how he's going with the Marinos and uh, and you know off the back of Ange Postecoglou, it's 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 a wonderful thing for Australian football, and uh, we all know the the heritage of us and Wenger at Grampus as well. That uh, uh, you know the uh, the J League can be a career maker for a lot of uh, coaches and a reputation maker. So it's done that for Ange. Maybe it'll do it for Kevin as as well as a coach. Sean, thanks so much for joining us on Box to Box. Not at all. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. Sean Carroll, into freelance football journalist over there in Japan. Okay, stick around. After the break, we're going to talk to James McNicholas uh, about Arsenal from The Athletic. Um, they got a bit of a result against the Baggies, but that was an under-21 side. Uh, what is going to happen this weekend against City? We'll find out from James after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. 
Yes, this is Box to Box on 9 Radio NTS News Talk Sport. Now, I know anyone who listens to this show thinks that Arsenal are my favourite whipping boy just because my friends Michael Edgeley and Derek Dyson happen to be gunners. But uh, I do love to see them doing well because uh, when Arsenal are doing well, there's just a certain swagger about the uh, Premier League that uh, that is happening. And a man who knows all about that is uh, the Athletics' James McNicholas. How are you, James? I'm much better this morning than I have been. I've been waiting patiently for Arsenal to open their account for the season by winning a game and actually scoring a goal. And I was lucky enough to see six of them last night against West Brom. So that has improved my mood, no way. Yes, you you are relieved, aren't you, mate? uh, We were sort of bantering about that before, but uh, it sort of feels like it's the eye of the storm, doesn't it, with... uh, uh, a trip to the Etihad this weekend, and, and in all seriousness, as as much as uh, the boys will ask you about that uh, match uh, against West Brom, uh, the um, the opening couple of rounds have given no great hope for uh, a great season under Arteta, and uh, and this weekend uh, uh, it could be um, it could be a very difficult assignment at the Etihad. I think so. It's going to be a very different quality of opposition, a very different sort of contest. Arsenal, you know. They played a depleted West Brom team last night, heavily rotated. They made 11 changes. But if you look back to the Chelsea game, I mean, they looked so far off the performance Chelsea produced. They're still missing a number of key players, although they got a couple back last night. But, you know, you think of players like Thomas Partey at the back, Gabriel and Ben White likely to still be absent. They're probably their two first-choice centre-halves. It's not ideal going to face Manchester City in those circumstances. And... You know, I think many Arsenal fans have kind of made their peace with the prospect of a difficult afternoon at the Etihad. Um, but I think, you know, the nature of the defeat so far against Brentford and Chelsea has been alarming. And while the Carabao Cup win provides a little respite, it is the league that is the focus for Arsenal this season, especially with no European football to distract them. It's all about climbing back into those European qualification places and they need to start picking up points soon. James, the irony of that result, of course, is that against West Brom is that we don't normally play in that round of the Carabao Cup. The first time in many, many years that we've come in 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 the second round. uh, But it's provided us a bit of relief. How much patience do you sense there is at the Emirates? It's been a while since I had my season ticket there. The age profile of the signings has been, you know, all young or up-and-coming players. You know, surely um, Arsenal fans are going to have to wait you know, two or three seasons before we really see the uh, fruits of what they've been doing in the transfer market. Yeah, I think you're you're right, by the way, about it being a long time. I think there were a couple of players on the pitch who weren't even born last time Arsenal played in that round of the competition. But as regarding that and the youth of the team, I think Arsenal have taken quite a bold, quite a positive step by, you know, not looking for short-term quick fixes as they have done a bit in previous transfer windows by trying to build something that has longevity, I think potentially something that's a little bit future-proofed against possible managerial change. You know, they've made five signings at the age of 23 and under, but there is that tension there of requiring patience and it being quite a long-term view. And football is not really a game where taking the long-term view is too easy because there's this constant short-term pressure of results. And even though rationally Arsenal fans may see, yeah, I can see what we've done is sensible, I can see this is going to take time, the pain and the frustration of not winning games is going to have an effect. We've seen that already in play this season. So I think there's a balance to be struck there. You know, Arteta, he needs to he needs to get points on the board. He needs to show that he can produce something in the short term. You know, Arsene Wenger was 
very famous for his kind of long-term youth-based strategy when Arsenal first moved to the Emirates Stadium. But that was in a league where Arsenal were pretty much sure that they would finish maybe fourth out of the top four. The situation in the Premier League has changed. The landscape has changed. There are many more teams now competing for those top six spots, really, probably seven or eight in contention. And Arsenal have to finish in that top six. They need to show, and Arteta needs to show, if he's going to continue at the club, that he can help return the club to European places. There's one thing to talk about, sort of the technical ability and the experience of the personnel and lots of discussion around the, the tactics and particularly where Arsenal's attackers disappeared over the last few seasons. But um, the spirit seems to be the thing that I think frustrates most Arsenal fans. It, it, it's not that they're just being overrun by better players. It's that there doesn't seem to be... Uh, that word identity has been used a few times, but also just where is the, the heartbeat of this team? I mean, that's a kind of perennial question that's been levelled at Arsenal. You know, where where are the leaders? And um, while there are senior figures in that dressing room, people like Aubameyang, people like Granit Xhaka, I think for different reasons, they're not necessarily the people you'd want to build a dressing room culture around. I, I think it's... The most encouraging thing I would say is there is a group of young players who do seem to share a bond, who do seem to share a connection, who de- do seem to share a sense of you know, what Arsenal's about. Many of them have come through the club's academy. And it's interesting, I think this season they've looked to add English players to that mix, which is not something Arsenal have historically done, partly because it comes with great expense. But I think Arsenal have done it in part to try and engender a kind of culture within the club that can push them forward. But... It is a big question and it is something that ultimately Arteta is responsible for and something the fans really now are looking at very carefully and saying, you know, what is it exactly that we're trying to build here? What is What does an Arsenal team under Mikel Arteta look like? Are they a possession-based side? Are they a counter-attacking side? Do they press? Do they sit deep? All these questions that haven't really had clear answers. And I think as soon as fans feel that they can grasp a sense of what this team is trying to be, it will be easier to judge it. This is Box to Box. We're talking to James McNicholas about the woes at Arsenal on Box to Box. James, there's been a lot made of the relationship between the owners, Cronky, and the fans, and, the, and Cronky seems to get a lot of criticism about um, not uh, opening up the wallet at the right time to secure plays that are desperately needed. But in defence of him... Um, Arsenal spent four hundred million pounds on players since the wing since Wenger left the club. So, strategically, does the are the club's recruiting processes, the resources they put into that, do they have what it takes to select, secure, and manage the right purchases, or are they wasting money? I think you're right to point out that Arsenal have spent money under the Cronkies, and I think that is something that gets overlooked in criticism of the owners. I think there are many reasons to criticise the owners, but I'm not sure that's one. I think they have released funds. I mean, look at this transfer window. I think they've spent maybe more than any other Premier League team as it stands, or it certainly was the case until recently. I think it is about how that money is spent. And that, I think, is where criticism of the owners is justified in terms of have they appointed the right people to make those decisions. If you think about the Arsenal, the money Arsenal have put into a signing like Willian, for example, yes, he was a free transfer he arrived comfortably into his 30s on a three-year contract, a very lucrative one at that, 
just 12 months into that, they're looking at a situation where they're probably going to have to pay him a very hefty chunk of compensation to get him to leave. And it'd be surprising, really, if he walks away with much less than what he's owed, because that's what happens in football. Footballers rarely lose money when they've got a contract. And Arsenal have had to do that elsewhere. You know, they've paid off the likes of Shkodra Mustafi, Meza Ozil. I mean, it's almost unprecedented, Arsenal, the, the way they have spent to get rid of players. And I think that means that you have to look at their recruitment and what brought those players into the club and question it and query it. They've taken a very sharply different strategy this summer in terms of signing younger players. We saw the likes of Tavares last night, uh, Lakongas come in. These are young, promising players who should, in theory, increase in value. I think that's a very welcome and overdue change. Arsenal have not done that enough in recent years. They've looked for quick fixes. They've gone for more experienced players who've declined on the club's time, on the club's wages. Now they're trying to take a leaf out of the book of a club like Leicester uh, and try a more sensible, more intelligent recruitment strategy. The problem is it comes at a time where the club is kind of at a bit of a rock bottom, having finished eighth two seasons in a row. Now they're adopting a long-term solution that might not provide an immediate fix. And will there be patience for that? And that's what I'm not so sure about. But I do think, actually, that this change in policy is healthy and long overdue. After the game against Chelsea, Arteta said that he was missing nine big senior players, um, essentially signalling to the fans, don't panic um, when the team gets together. Uh, they will be competitive and and uh, and do the job. Um, do you believe uh, that excuse, James? Um, do you have confidence that the spine that he's re- recruited, you know, Ramsdale in goal, White and Gabriel in the the centre of defence, Party and Zucker in the heart of the midfield, um, Odegaard floating behind the main striker, is that nucleus of players? Are they going to get the job done? Yeah, I think Arteta did a kind of typically managerial thing where when he said nine senior players missing, I think he overplayed that, really. I think any Arsenal fan would tell you, well, probably five or six of those are starters. And to be fair to him, that is half a team, so it does make a difference. But the situation wasn't quite as grave as he suggested. Uh, will it make a difference? Well, I think, I think it will. I actually think that it's more about one or two players than even five or six. I think Thomas Partey is a a transformational player for Arsenal in the midfield. He just changes what's possible for this team. His ability to escape the press, his ability to play passes between the lines. I think he's a more multi-dimensional player than pretty much any other midfielder Arsenal have on their books. If you compare him to a Granit Xhaka or Mohamed Elneny, I think he just brings so much more to the team. And then I think something else they've missed is just at centre-forward. We saw... Bamiang start last night, Lacazette come off the bench, both scored. I think the likelihood is only one will actually play for this team regularly in the league. But without that, Arsenal were looking at Gabriel Martinelli, they were looking at Balogun, you know, two guys uh, barely out of their teen years who aren't really going to have the same impact in the Premier League. As much as there is hope for them, they just don't have that presence, they don't have that experience to trouble Premier League centre half. So I think even in kind of those couple of positions, Arsenal will improve. But I think it's important that we kind of curtail expectations a little on that. I don't think Arsenal are going to be, you know, pushing for major honours this season. I actually don't think they even really stand much of a chance of finishing in the top four. Even without the fixture congestion, I just think Manchester United, Chelsea, as we saw at the weekend, Manchester City, as we'll doubtless see this weekend, and Liverpool are probably just too strong for what Arsenal can produce right now. Do I think they have the potential to be a top six team? 
competing with the likes of Tottenham, Leicester, West Ham. I certainly do. I certainly think they can be in that mix. And without European football, I think they may be able to focus on it slightly more than others. But I, I think they can be about as good as they were in the second half of last season, which is kind of, you know, a, a strong mid-table side, upper mid-table, maybe threatening into the top six. I don't think they can do more than that. Uh, and I think, you know, Arsenal fans expect more than that. And they should. But when we look at where the squad is right now, I don't think they will do that. And in the meantime, those of us who are not Arsenal fans, James, can enjoy the <laughs> fact that uh, you guys are sitting in the relegation zone until you yeah. somehow manage to get out of it. <laughs> yeah, tune into AFTV this weekend after the Man City yes. game. I'm sure that'll be entertaining viewing for the neutrals. I mean, Arsenal are a club who tip into crisis, I think, quicker than any other. And, you know, we are only two games into this league season and, uh, you know, I think things will get better. The fixture list is much kinder, certainly after the international break. A lot of focus will be on that Norwich game, which is the first game back Arsenal play. I think fans are actually pretty realistic about what might happen at the Etihad. If Arsenal don't beat Norwich uh, a couple of weeks after that, then I think uh, the Emirates is going to be a, a pretty feisty place indeed. Yeah, we might invite you back on for that. I'd love to just sit back and listen to the three of you banter about that. Uh, <laughs> if it happened. James, not so much how much banter it'll be. It might just be oh. very morose from me. Hi, guys. guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, uh, James, um, thank you very much for joining us again, mate. Very grateful uh, for your time. And uh, um, the boys will be uh, watching the Gunners uh, very, very closely and hope uh, it turns around. Cheers, mate. Thanks for having me. James McNicholas from The Athletic, uh, one of our favourite publications, always very generous to us. OK, we're going to turn our attention back to the domestic league. Craig Goodwin from Adelaide United next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box on Nine Radio, NTS News Talk Sport. We've been to Japan, we've been to London. Now let's go to Adelaide and talk to uh, one of our favourite soccerers. He's back at Adelaide United after spending half the season last time around. Craig Goodwin, how are you, mate? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. No, not at all, Craig. So uh, it's... Uh, well, you know, about eight weeks away before the season starts and uh, it gives us time to, to do a, a little deep dive into uh, the various clubs as uh, as we uh, we focus on the competition coming up. But uh, but but good things seem to, to be happening in Adelaide. You've got the confidence to, to extend your deal, your loan deal from uh, from your, your Saudi club uh, uh, for, for another 12 months. Um, you missed last season's finals with an ankle injury um, and uh, um, your, uh, your first child with your partner was born, mate. It's been, a, it's been a big time for you in uh, in recent months. Yeah, it has been. Um, obviously, it was a, a little disappointing um, to miss the final series. Um, it's the first major injury I've had. Um, so that was disappointing in the timing. Um, but now, obviously, coming to the preseason, um, I've been my rehab has been tracking really well. The surgery went well, and I'm running now and doing a bit of ball work. So it's probably about another two or three weeks before I'm back in with the team. Um, and yeah, we had um, myself and and my partner Caitlin um, had a, a baby boy um, two weeks ago today. So it's been a really exciting time. What's his name? Thank mate? you, Ezra. Ezra, a lovely Ezra Goodwin, mate. We'll keep an eye out for that name in the future. <laughs> Let's well, uh, fantastic news, Craig. Congratulations to you and your wife and uh, and your family. I'm just fascinated to ask you about Saudi Arabia. I mean, not many Australians uh, go there and play there, but um, 
Can you just um, describe a little bit from your perspective what the experience was like um, and just how big football... I don't think a lot of Australians really recognise just how massive football is in, in Saudi Arabia. If you can just reflect on your time there just so our listeners get a bit of a window into what it's really like over there. Um, yeah, so for me, it's, I guess it's probably a little bit of, of uh, mixed feelings. I have very good, uh, very good uh, fond memories of it um, for now and stuff. And I'm, well, I'm due to go back there after, after this season, depending on what happens. Um, so my first season there was, was amazing. Um, I was welcomed by um, my, my, my team in Saudi, Al Wahida, the fans, um, and we had a great year, the, the best year in the club's history. Uh, managed to to make the Asian Champions League spot and finish fourth, um, and have a really good season. Um, and individually, myself had a really good season. Um, I would say that the football there um, is, like you said, it's it's much bigger um, than people realise. Uh, it's the main sport over there, and and the support that it has is is really large. And and some of the crowds you can get. Um, push over 40,000 um, as well um, for the big games um, when you're playing against Halal, uh, Nassar, Al Ali. Um, all those teams have a, a really big supporter base, and they're very fanatical. So it's you know you can go out um, to to the shops and and be easily recognised. Whereas here in Australia, you can be recognised, but much it's much more low key and and quiet um, compared to there. They are very fanatical as well, so it's um, probably a little bit closer to, to Europe in, in some ways um, for the bigger teams in Saudi. Um, and then in terms of the style of play, um, the heat's a major factor. You're playing in you know, 30, 40 degree heat all year round, um, bar a couple of places in Saudi where it's a high altitude um, and lower temperatures. Um, it's, it's a lot slower at times. Um, I would say the quality overall is 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 better than the Australian league. I would say the Australian league is much much more structured and, and tactical and and better better as a team. But when you play the top teams over there, they have that structure, and then they have the high quality foreigners as well. Um, you know, they're spending multi millions on on foreign players, um, and then with the financial backing they have, um, they're able to keep the best Saudi players as well. Just as you mentioned then, foreign players, it is. how did you carry the responsibility of being a foreigner there? Because there is an expectation on the foreigners that you are going to be uh, of, of a really superior quality and and make a contribution. Did you enjoy that responsibility, Craig? Yeah, I really did. Um, I'd heard from a lot of, a lot of people um, that have been there and, and the foreign players that were at my club that there is that extra responsibility on the foreigners um, and you can understand that, you know, that obviously they're, they're paying more money to the foreigners. And if things are going well, um, it's because of it's Sometimes it's just because of the foreigners. But if things are going bad, it's because of the foreigners. So um, you kind of have that double-edged sword. You get the best of it and you get the worst of it too. So if you lose one or two games, um, you, you it's the, the foreign players that are getting the, the brunt of the, the I guess, the, the comments um, from fans, but when you're doing well, they they really love you, and and you're getting uh, a lot of a lot of support. Um, for me, in the first season, it, it was uh, amazing um, to be able to to do so well. Um, but then for the second season, um, you know, we had I think 
four coaches in the in the first season as well. That's that's another point that there's a, a high turnover in, in coaches and players. So we finished fourth, and there was four coaches throughout the season. Um, and then uh, a new coach came in for the start of the second season, and and decided that he wanted to bring in his own um, Portuguese winger uh, and a centre back uh, as well. And it was me and another player, uh, another foreigner that um, was sacrificed for that. Um, but the director at the club didn't want to get rid of me um, entirely, so he wanted to just send me out on loan and to have me back um, the following season. Um, but obviously, they were they were relegated um, this season, just gone. So they went from being, you know, in a Champions League spot to um, getting relegated the the following season. And you are on loan back at Adelaide, your, your hometown. Um, it's uh, an exciting time at the club under Carl Viet, uh, the Touré brothers, Cassini Yengi. Um, just give us your thoughts on uh, on your expectations uh, for, for this uh, you know, glut of youth uh, that's coming through, talented youth, and, and the season ahead. Um, so I've said it in a few interviews um, in during last season and the back end of last season that it's probably some of the best youngsters we've had at the club um, in some time. Um, and we have, I think, a decent, uh, decent group um, from last year of older players to, to help them as well. Um, and obviously, this this season we've been able to retain um, the likes of, of Juan de Javi, um, myself, um, Ben Halloran still there, Steph Mork, and and then we've signed Isaias as well, which I think is is massive. Um, you know, he's a club legend and and probably one of my favourite players to to ever play with. So I think we can. We can really guide the young players that are there. Um, there are there are some really good ones coming through and have amazing potential. Um, and hopefully this coming season they can have um, a real big involvement and a real big impact um, to the team. And and then hopefully they can fulfil their p- potential and and progress to an overseas level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you say, he's a real character, a, a charismatic player, isn't he? One that uh, that gets the, the fans excited. And when you see these young blokes as well, um, it is a, an exciting environment to, to be around. Um, and when the High Marsh Stadium is uh, is rocking, mate, uh, there's no better place to watch football in this country. Craig Goodwin, uh, all the best uh, for the season ahead. It's a few uh, weeks away, as we say, but um, but looks like there's plenty of good times to come for, for Adelaide. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thanks, guys. No worries. Thanks for joining us, mate. Okay, stick around after the news. We're going to talk to Philippe or Claire from The Guardian about what's been going on in France. Big stories around Kylian Mbappe, obviously Lionel Messi and the disaster at the the Nice-Marseille derby. We'll talk more Europe with Dino and Del, and we'll, of course, wrap it up with stoppage time. That's next on Box to Box. Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh! For Chemist Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Absolutely fantastic! Welcome back to Box to Box, the busy second hour ahead, second edition news with Willem Vendender and shortly the Guardian's Philippe O'Claire will talk League One, more European news with Dino and Dell and we'll wrap it up with stoppage time. But Willem, I'm going to let you get straight into it, mate, because I know you've got a stack. Fantastic. Thank you, Rob. Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army to start, of course. Not long now until the final stage of World Cup qualifying gets underway for our Socceroos. And what better way to get involved than to support them with the Green and Gold Army? Sign up to the mailing list for info on all future overseas tours for all of our national teams. Head to ggatravel.com.au. 
Numerous Matildas have learned their paths to reach the group stage of the UEFA Champions League with two-legged playoffs to begin in early September. So the new format of the Champions League proper will see 16 sides. Sam Kerr and Chelsea are one of four sides to have already been locked and loaded. Nine other Matildas could be involved in the competition. So Hayley Rasso and Manchester City have been drawn against Real Madrid. Ellie Carpenter and Leon will play Levante. Arsenal, of course, home of Steph Catley, Lydia Williams, and Caitlin Ford will play Slavia Praha. Dylan Holmes of Swedish champions Hacken will play Valerenga of Norway. And Charlotte Grant and Tegan Micah of Rosengard will play TSG Hoffenheim. So as I said, those matches to be played in the first couple of weeks of September. Michael, we'd expect Arsenal and, and Steph, Lydia, and Caitlin to progress past Prague. What do you make of the rest of the draw for our Matildas? I think it's a good one. Uh, obviously, Ellie at uh, Olympic Leonese, they will, um, you know, they'll be one of the favourites. They should get past Levante without too many problems. Um, and as you mentioned, the the, the the Arsenal team should be good. Uh, Real Madrid, um, interesting. They're a team that's uh, had a lot of change recently. So Hayley Rasso and Manchester City will need to be on their uh, on their form to do that. But that's a that's an interesting interesting fixture. And um, and obviously, Dylan Holmes is really starting to get some traction. Uh, with her Swedish uh, club Hacken, as you mentioned, so uh, that that's a, a more of an even tussle, I'd imagine. But uh, it, it'll be great to watch the Matildas in this competition because the standard is very high, Willem. Ange Postecoglou and Tom Rogic continue to take all before them at Celtic. They put six unanswered goals past St Mirren in the league last weekend. That's six wins on the bounce in all competitions. This weekend, though, the challenges really do start to ramp up for Ange and his boys. Uh, in the early hours of Friday, they'll play RZ Alkmaar for a place in the Europa League. And on Sunday night, 9pm Eastern in Australia, Ange's first taste of the old firm derby. Rob, if they win that, it'll be Ange Bedlam in Glasgow. They, uh, there was a tabloid article that did the rounds this week. Ange visited Greece. Euros stand Maktasos at Glasgow <laughs> Fort. If they get up against Rangers, they'll have cameras in his bedroom. He won't be safe anywhere. Look, if there's anyone that's capable of handling the pressure, it'll be Ange. I mean, uh, he'll just be absolutely loving it. You'd have to think this would be the highlight of his entire football career. Uh, to And he has had some highlights, but uh, to be on, on the uh, sideline with Stevie Gerrard uh, in the other technical area, uh, uh, it's um, it, it's a, it's a, uh, the atmosphere. We're going to talk more about derbies later in the hour, but, uh, you know, there's other added stories to it. Uh, Celtic couldn't guarantee Rangers tickets to the to the reverse uh, derby, so there'll be no Celtic fans in the stadium. So, you know, if it was intimidating before, it's just going to get more intimidating as it goes on. So uh, all the best to Ange. Wouldn't it be great if Stevie Gerrard gets a job in the, the Premier League, Kevin Musket wins the J-League and then gets the job at Rangers as an old player there and goes head-to-head with Muskie? You know, is that a theory to along a bow to draw? Elsewhere in Scotland, Martin Boyle remains in cracking form ahead of the Socceroos' upcoming fixtures. He's level for the most league goals with three from three for Hibs. In England, Mas Luongo started his first game in some time for Sheffield Wednesday. He played a full 90 in a 2-0 win in League One, so that's a good sign for Mass on the recovery from a, uh, a long layoff with various injuries. And around the continent, Aidan Rustich saw 80 minutes in the Bundesliga with Eintracht Frankfurt, and Daniel Arzani made his debut for new side Lommel in the Belgian second tier and to South Korea to finish Lockie Jackson uh, formerly of the Newcastle Jets has scored the goal of his life in the Suwon Derby for Suwon Blue Wings a remarkable finish he was facing the ball around the uh, the six yard area as it got crossed back into him and it should have had nothing to do with his heel but he somehow managed to uh, finish it with his back heel jump on the uh, the box to box Twitter account if you haven't seen it Absolutely, what a finish. It was fantastic. But I somehow think, Willem, I don't know if I can say this on radio, Rob, but I am going to. I think ass beats class every time, doesn't it, Willem? <laughs> well, it, I had no idea how he finished it, and neither did he, based off uh, his reaction. Well, I think I'm right then, yeah. Um, don't you expect take to it, score that next uh, week. 
Judging by his response, Willem, I think he was thinking that he was pretty lucky. But what a goal. And didn't the commentators love it? They <laughs> they uh, absolutely di- dissected it to its uh, inch, inch of its life. But um, there was some great slow-mo footage, including his response, which was, he had his eyes popping out of you said, the young Australian. To the big news in the Premier League this week, Harry Kane is staying at Tottenham until at least January after Spurs chairman Daniel Levy refused to entertain a deal with Man City. Kane came off the bench in a win over Wolves on Sunday and received a rousing reception from Spurs fans, later saying he's 100% committed to the club. The 28-year-old is contracted until 2024. It's believed Levy wouldn't consider less than £160 million for his signature. So, Rob, I don't think that'll be the last time we'll hear of Kane maybe agitating for a leave uh, until that contract in 2024 runs out, especially if they don't start winning a few trophies. But the happiest man going around would have surely been Nuno Espirito Santo. I love my brothers. I've got four of them, but uh, I don't know that if I was Harry Kane that I'd have one of them negotiate my contract because uh, uh, what has happened with Harry is that they've uh, left out the clause that allowed him to leave and uh, when you're relying on a, a gentleman's agreement in football uh, or any professional sport around the world you're uh, um, you're relying on um, that uh, something that's not worth the paper that it's not written on as Henry Winter said right. uh, so uh, yeah I think um, Henry um, Harry will um, will regret uh, what happened there and eventually he'll leave but um, look hopefully for his sake he gets to win a trophy in the meantime. Real Madrid have submitted a 160 million euro bid for Kylian Mbappe which PSG sporting director Leonardo described as very far from his worth. Mbappe moved to PSG from Monaco in 2017 for 180 million euros and PSG would owe Monaco 35 million should they on sell him again. Mbappe is contract until the end of the season and Leonardo has said while they will not hold him back they will only let him go on their terms. So Michael still plenty to play out there uh, that is a low ball offer to kick off proceedings and only less than a week to go until the transfer market wraps up so I'm not sure we're going to see a move uh, from Killian. Perez, the Real Madrid president, is just obsessed with signing him. It's about his third serious um, attempt at it. And there is reports of a fractious relationship between Mbappe and PSG. That just won't go away, those reports. And don't forget the Bernabeu, um, it's, it's partway through a 600 million euro works package. And on top of that, um, Real Madrid faced a shortfall of 300 million euros uh, because of pandemic impacts on its gate takings and sponsor revenues. So uh, this is a bold play by a president that uh, we've criticised in the past, Rob, as being a bit of a clown. I just hope he knows what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, Florentino. Well, you know, he was the mastermind behind behind the Super League, wasn't he? So well, I think he's uh, uh, well earned his uh, his long boots and his red nose. But um, it'll be interesting to see if he can get Mbappe over the line. But uh, well, well, let's find out what Filippo Claire says. Uh, but Willem, have you got one more before we talk to Philippe? I do. Gianni Infantino has written to UKPM Boris Johnson asking for the relaxation of quarantine rules for players entering countries on the UK's red list. Premier League clubs won't release players for September internationals held in red list countries as players would miss club fixtures while quarantining on their return. The Premier League has, says, uh, has said clubs reluctantly but unanimously agreed to the decision and the UK government has made it clear their stance will not change. So, for example, Liverpool have decided not to release Mo Salah and their trio of Brazilians, Alisson Fabinho and Firmino. So much like the 
the Socceroos upcoming World Cup qualifiers, Rob, as frustrating and disappointing as it is, and the longer it goes on, the integrity of World Cup qualifiers is starting to be compromised, but it doesn't look like this will be changing and, and we'll roll on. The matches will be played and these guys will miss out for their countries. All right, well, well done. Well, I guess coming up after the break, we've uh, had his good mate Max Rushton on from The Guardian, uh, from one of our favourite football podcasts, The Guardian Football Weekly, but Philippe Auclair is a regular on that podcast and anyone who listens to it regularly will know Philippe is just one of the great sporting observers uh, in, in the, the world of football. So stick around. It'll be good with Philippe Auclair talking League One after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box on 9 Radio, NTS News, Talk Sport. And as any regular listener to our show is well aware, the Guardian Football Weekly podcast is one of our favourite podcasts, one of the most informative and entertaining, let's say, podcasts that there is in football. And one of the key members of that podcast is the Guardian's Philippe O'Claire, and he joins us now. How are you, Philippe? I am not too bad, and thank you very much for the lovely compliments. No, not at all. Um, we uh, we thoroughly enjoyed uh, some of that great humour. Nothing like hearing Barry come off the long run when he's uh, when he's on his high <laughs> horse, is there, mate? <laughs> but uh, but Philippe, um, we, uh, we we've got you on to talk about uh, Ligue 1, but uh, uh, for some good reasons, and, and obviously for some uh, some of the unfortunate um, news that's come out. But before we get to the Nice Marseille story, uh, uh, there is a big uh, story again brewing out at the transfer market. Uh, we've seen Lionel Messi uh, arrive yeah. at PSG and he was meant to be part of that trio of strike force with Mbappe and Neymar. But now we're hearing uh, that uh, there's the potential for Mbappe to, to head over to Real Madrid. What can you tell us about that? Um, will it happen by the transfer window? Will it happen at all? Um, I wish I could answer this this question, in which case I would be the most in-demand journalist on the, on the football planet, I think, at the moment. Uh, the, the way it stands at the moment is that we have got a, a club that is uh, that has made public its desire to uh, acquire the player, Real Madrid. We've got a player who is now unsettled at PSG and makes no secret that he would quite like to join Real Madrid. That's uh, Kylian Mbappé. And then we've got a, a club, PSG, uh, whose sports director, Leonardo, uh, was gave. I mean, he gave an extraordinarily candid interview to a French radio station uh, called RNC, and uh, in which he basically said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if he wants to go, but it will have to be our price and so forth." And this price is eye-watering because we're talking about. I mean, I'm talking in euros here. I will leave you the <laughs> the task of doing the conversion, but we're talking about 188 million euros. That's a, an awful lot of money for a player who's got only. Uh, what? What is it? Uh, Ten months and a half left on his contract, and who could be approached directly by Real Madrid as soon as the uh, as January 2021 uh, to organise um, a so-called free transfer, which of course wouldn't be free. So this is the situation where we are now. Uh, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. It doesn't mean that everybody's necessarily talking sincerely. Um, for example, it could be that Real Madrid are making it known. Uh, that they are willing to put this astonishing amount of money, despite their precarious financial situation, to acquire one of the world's greatest attacking players, so that the player realizes that Real Madrid is really serious. And when they come for real uh, next uh, next uh, June uh, or in January, actually, uh, they you know they will have shown 
willing, they would have shown that they desperately wanted him to join Karim Benzema and the Nazar and all the others at the Bernabeu. So it could happen, and also it could not happen. So get ready uh, for yet another of those typical transfer market rides where it's going to be one truth one day, uh, or actually one morning, and another truth in the afternoon to change again by the evening. So this is where we are at the moment. That he wants to go, that I can tell you that absolutely true. Yes. No, no. Uh, that PSG would be willing to uh, let him go if the right amount of money was given to them? Absolutely. Will Real Madrid really want to invest 188 million euros when they can have the player for free, so to speak, again uh, next June? That is the question, I, I, I believe. Uh, but um, another thing is sure is that the just like the hurricane a relationship with the Tottenham fans has been damaged. We don't know to which extent yet, but it has been damaged with the Tottenham Hotspur fans. The relationship between Kylian Mbappe and the PSG fans is also, will also have suffered quite a lot from uh, what has happened and what is perceived from supporters as a kind of betrayal, to use that incredibly strong and uh, uh, word in, in that context. But that's where we are, more or less. Philippe, fantastic analysis. We love that. Tell us, just for Australian football fans, let's move on to the the news from last weekend, the match between Nice and Marseille. Just for Australian football fans, can you explain uh, to our community the depth of rivalry that exists between those two clubs, the Derby du Sud, as I believe it's called? Uh, We'd love to know Mm. the background and just how much they dislike each other. They, they do dislike each other a great deal. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the uh, biggest uh, or the, the most uh, intense, uh, uh, almost hateful derby in French football. I, can, I mean, certainly PSGOM is, uh, is on a different scale to almost anything else, and Lyon Saint-Étienne is another one. But obviously the, um, the proximity of, of the, two, rel- the relative proximity, of course, of the two cities, cities explains that. Nice was uh, at one point uh, a club that was constantly uh, fighting for honours. I'm talking quite a few two decades ago, uh, at a time when Marseille was also very strong. Uh, so there's an element of regional rivalry. Uh, there have been incidents before. I seem to remember that in 2016, a game had to be between the two had to be interrupted because of the use of flares and some pretty rowdy behaviour by some fans. But what we saw at uh, the Allianz Arena uh, on Sunday night uh, was quite unprecedented. And I have to say, uh, not just between those two clubs, but, you know, I would have to go back quite a long way to find incidents of that seriousness. Um, I would imagine that a number of your listeners will have seen the pictures, but for those who haven't, very briefly what happened is that Dimitri Payet, the UN player, uh, who is detested by a number of fans from rival teams, uh, went to take a corner kick and was hit square uh, in the back um, by a, a water bottle. And this water bottle was full. It must have hurt a lot. You can imagine, throw it from the stand, from the height, and it hit him. And he was he, he reacted as I think many of us would have reacted, which is not quite correct, by throwing back the projectile and you know uh, into the crowd. And and then all hell broke broke loose. The stewards tried to intervene, but there was a a, a pitch invasion. There were scuffles. Uh, three Marseille, play- Marseille players uh, were actually injured lightly, fortunately, but they bore the marks of their I- injury. 
Uh, Dimitri Payet was uh, punched by a Nice supporter who has been arrested since then. Uh, there was also, I mean, not that nobody behaved, to be honest, as they should have. Um, the Marseille bench as well uh, reacted in a very, very violent way, which won't surprise people who know Jorge Sampaoli, their new manager, who is a, a very passionate man. Um, there were altercations between the players and so forth. It carried on. And, and so the referee decided quite logically to uh, interrupt the game. The Marseille players went back to the dressing room. Uh, a discussion took place between various parties. The referee didn't want to start the game again, but uh, the game restarted apparently under the pressure of the local um, civil authorities who feared that there would be great unrest in the stadium. So the Nice players came back on the pitch and, and to play a corner kick. And we had this surreal scene in which you had the whole Nice team preparing for a corner kick and nobody would take the corner kick because Marseille stayed in the dressing room. <laughs> so... A tragic comedy, and but the effect of which is being felt, it will be felt for a long time. Um, the Discipline Commission uh, took its first um, decisions last night, and for the time being, uh, it's just one, Nice will have to play one game uh, behind closed doors, uh, which is their game against uh, Girondin Bordeaux on Saturday. And uh, one of the uh, physios from Olympic Marseille, Pablo Fernandez, uh, has been suspended basically from um, you know presence in the stadium as well, but the affair will be examined again on 8 September, as I understand it, by the discipline commission of the French league. In, in typical French fashion, everybody is uh, passing the hot potato from one camp to the other, and everybody is saying, "Yeah, we're right," or "That was scandalous." Payet is the culprit. No, the Niçois the culprit, and you you carry on like that. It's a complete mess i'm afraid philippe if we just take this a little more broad when it comes to league i'm wondering what the whether you think there's an overall net benefit or loss uh with messi coming in obviously there's issues all over uh, french football we've just yep. spoken about the the riot the 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 uh, nice marseille game the tv rights we could probably do a whole podcast just on what's going on there <laughs> yes, um it's a, a total fiasco but is is messi good for french football or is it you know what the pr would say we're going to fill up stadiums and we're going to get bigger audiences television audience interest from around the world or is this just going to be a greater um you know, you know, uh, you know. We're not going to have any of the the romance of last season and 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 that that excellent victory from from Lille. Where, where is French football now with Messi in it? Right, that's, that's an awful lot of uh, <laughs> points to try to respond to. I would say that when it comes to what, what should be said is first of all is that this season has started extremely well. I mean, if you put aside the uh, incident uh, at Nice. Uh, the football has been of very high quality. Uh, it's been thrilling. There have been some thrilling games at the weekend. There was an absolutely magnificent comeback by uh, the newly promoted Clermont-Ferrand, which is uh, uh, a team that's practicing the kind of football. Honestly, watch them if you can. I mean, they're really, really spectacular. Um, so it started really well. Um, and of course, Messi, well, there's a f first thing you have to do is you have to put aside for a while the... Uh, ethical dimension of uh, that coming, I was going to say transfer, it's not a transfer, but of PSG acquiring Lionel Messi uh, 
And because there will be an awful lot of things, and I hope that someday we'll have a chance to talk about them, to say about the way PSG is going about its business and um, obviously backed by the financial might of uh, Qatar and has been able to recruit uh, Hakimi, Donnarumma, Wijnaldum, Sergio Ramos and Lionel Messi in a single summer, which is honestly insane in our, in our day and age, in the age of the pandemic, uh, when PSG has been losing uh, money oh, and considerable amounts of money as well and basically financial fair play has gone through the window but that's if you put that aside and that's 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 not an easy thing to do uh it is obviously a huge boost uh not just for psg but for Liga as a whole you suddenly have the man who has won the ballon d'or on more occasions than any other in the history of the award with who is with you it's just won the copa america who is the uh i mean you know one of the, if not the greatest player who has ever been on the football field, and, and he's wearing your jersey, and you see him, in theory, being associated with Angel Di Maria, Neymar, and Kylian Mbappe in a team of uh, all the talents, which you know almost make Florentino Perez's Galacticos pale in comparison, almost. So, of course, and, and I, 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 I don't even know what's going to happen when he makes his debut, which is apparently this weekend against Reims, it's, it's a massive event. Uh, and I, I don't think that there is one stage at which the French League has ever had the best player in the world at this point in time. Never. Because, um, and you could argue maybe Messi still is, but won't be for very long. But Zidane became Zidane when he went to Italy. Thierry Henry became Thierry Henry when he went to Arsenal, uh, the truly, truly great French players, Michel Platini was a fabulous player, but he became probably the best player in the world at his time when he was with Juve. So it's the first time that uh, a French club, a Qatari-owned French club, that is, uh, has a player of that dimension. I mean, even Mbappe and, you know, and Neymar, phenomenally successful, good, and popular on social networks that they may be uh, are nothing compared to Lionel Messi. He's in a different, different dimension altogether. So that's huge. And so everywhere PSU will go, um, you will have a circus of some kind. You will have interest, worldwide interest. That certainly will help LFP, the league, uh, because after the debacle of the, uh, of the TV rights, uh, my goodness, when you go to a foreign market and you say, well, by the way, guys, would you like to have Messi on your televisions every every weekend? And people are going to say, well, actually, you know what? I, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> and also when it comes to commercial sponsors and so forth, uh, it would benefit PSG first and foremost, but there will be an impact and obviously on the whole of French League. And again, you know, this, regardless of whatever you might think about the ethical dimension of, of the PSG project and of the operation, uh, if you want to in, in really and stone cold language, facts, facts, factual language, say, is it a good or a bad thing? I would say it's a tremendous thing, obviously. Philippe, for a rather complex question, you did an incredibly good job of unraveling it and giving a very detailed answer. So thank you for that, Brad. Hey, no, that's uh, perfectly we, all right. 
We would love to stick around and talk to you for a lot longer, uh, but we are going to have to let you go. And that's without even mentioning Arsenal, because the two blokes who will talk to you other than me are uh, gunners similar to you and... Um, like men walking the gangplank heading towards the uh, um, the Etihad this weekend. So uh, uh, thank you for talking French football, and we hope you can enjoy a little bit of respite this weekend uh, against City. And uh, I know as much as it galls me to say, no, so I won't. I'd love to see I, I can, I can. No, 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 I won't. I won't have any respite. I mean, the weekend with um, Man City, Arsenal, and the game between Chelsea and Liverpool. That's uh, it's going to be a busy one. I can tell you that. Yeah, absolutely. Philippe Auclair, thank you very, very much for joining us on Box to Box. Thank you. The Guardian's Philippe Auclair, what a wonderful chat that was. Okay, stick around. More from Europe next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal Box to Box on 9 Radio NTS News Talk Sport. What a bumper show it has been this week love just talking to Philippe Beauclair we really enjoy listening to him on the Guardian Football Weekly podcast as any listener to this show knows we're going to talk more Premier League in a moment but before we do we all know that Father's Day is just a week and a bit away on Sunday the 5th of September so if you need to get your dad set with some fantastic fragrances you know there's only one place to go and of course that is Chemist Warehouse there's Burberry Mr Burberry 100ml OD Toilet two piece set for $54.99. Dolce et Gabbana pour homme light blue intense 100ml eau de toilette three piece set for $69.99. Bulgari aquamarine pour homme 100ml eau de toilette three piece set for $79.99. And Hugo Boss bottled 100ml eau de toilette three piece set for $69.99. What value you getting multiple bottles in the one set? Remember, in addition to visiting your local store, you can click and collect to save time, order online for delivery by Australia Post, and get free shipping on orders over $50. Fees and charges may apply. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings are every single day. And Derek, this will be your second Father's Day since the lovely May have arrived um, earlier last year. Um, I'm sure um, your beautiful wife Sarah has um, gone out and um, bought gifts for Maeve to, to give to you from Chemist Warehouse. Uh, possibly. Uh, I'm actually moving house on Father's Day, so I've timed that very, very well indeed. <laughs> But um, we should probably talk about some some uh, Premier League football. First of all, did any any of you guys take my advice on uh, Lukaku first goal against Arsenal? You Called it in box yeah. to box last week. Yeah, no, three no. to one. You would have got on that one, guys. So yeah, um, really should have gone for that. I'll maybe have another tip for you later on, which could become a regular feature of this segment. But first things first, Dino Harry Kane announcing overnight that he is in fact staying at Tottenham uh, he's lost that duel with Dan Levy quite spectacularly hasn't he he has yeah look it's um it's it's really weird because I mean obviously Man City have played a big part in this and uh, and the money that they spent with uh, obviously Grealish moving there and then obviously um, you know, we know Daniel Levy from old. He's he's uh, he's, he's stubborn and he's, he's and he and he and he generally tries to get his own way. And it looks like it's uh, worked out that exact way. Maybe don't need him after beating Norwich five uh, nil and, and a debut goal for Grealish. I don't know how much he knew about that goal to be honest, but he'll he'll take it. But quite oh, interesting yeah. <laughs> news coming out of. City today that Pep Guardiola says he's going to leave in a couple of years to go and manage a national team. Could he? Could he turn up at Wales? Do you know? Uh, 
Um, I don't think he'd be at Wales, no. But um, yeah, I think you know, I think I can see him being an international manager. Um, and uh, and I think he's also spoken about moving back to South America. The um, Liverpool kept their season going, Rob, with that two 0 win over Burnley. Um, to it, um, gr- you know, another great goal for the uh, the new man up front, uh, Jota. How important is he going to be this season? Look, he was an amazing player with Wolves, and uh, part of that uh, Nuno. Uh, promotion team and uh, you know he's a really much loved player I think he was one of the key players along with Virgil van Dijk who um, it, his injury derailed the, the entire season so you know the the, the main strike force of uh, Firmino Salah and um, and Salah Mane I should say were um, you know instrumental in winning the, the, the title but I think if uh, if Liverpool are going to mount a serious challenge against City he will be one of the heroes at the back end of the season. And remembering, of course, the Liverpool lost the tie last week, last year to Burnley. That started the rot. Um, so the fact that they can just get a result over Burnley and keep the momentum going in the first two rounds of the season, you know, is a positive thing. Speaking of Wolves, of course, they um, lost uh, to their former manager. Tottenham, a great start to the season. Two from two from Nuno. He was about 17th choice for this job and he's won the first two games of the season. So fair play to him. I think that's a terrific start. Dino, Mikel Antonio um, is now the record goal scorer in the Premier League for West Ham. Uh, he did it with a double um, in, in their win over Leicester City, which in itself was a great result. How underrated is Mikel Antonio? Look, I think he is as well. I mean, uh, I mean, I know he had a, a spell at Forest, um, you know, and that was obviously the the Derby Forest thing again that, that, that always keeps popping up. But um, look, I think he's been superb at uh, at West Ham, and 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 the goals, like he 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 just, I mean, I I can't remember how old he is, but I think he's into his his early thir- well mid thirties, like thirty or thirty one, possibly. Um, but he's got plenty of energy, and, and look, I like West Ham. I, I actually backed them in uh, this this week. I had a little nibble on a on a bet because I, you know, because Leicester are a good side, and I thought, but no, I, I wanted to back West Ham because I thought they were really good against Newcastle in the opening uh, round. So look, I think there's a lot of upside, and um, and I think David Moyes should uh, get a lot of attention as well because I think the way he manages, I think it might suit Antonio and many, many others within the squad. We'll move on to quickly with Arsenal. We covered it with uh, James McNicholas earlier on in the show, but they uh, lost to uh, Chelsea at home 2-0 and inevitably Lukaku on the score sheet with a very easy finish. And as we know, Manchester City to come for Arsenal, I see that being a pretty, not just a loss for Arsenal, but a, a pretty heavy loss as well. I wouldn't be surprised if it's three goals or more, the difference between those two teams. Um, Southampton got a pretty good point against Manchester United, who will be disappointed really that they couldn't have picked up the two there um, to to maintain their strong start. Another team with a great start is Brighton, two from two under Graham Potter. Um, great 2-0 win for them. Um, and then uh, Leeds and Everton sharing an entertaining 2-2 draw. Villa getting their season on track with a 2-0 win over Newcastle. And Brentford are in the top half of the table. They're still undefeated with a 0-0 draw against Palace. Um, Edge, you've got a line on digital ticketing and the Premier League. Yes, it's a bit of an issue that's been bubbling away. Um, obviously, the Premier League has enforced a new digital ticketing system 
that has really unsettled fans in the first two weeks of operations. There's photos at Anfield of queues of more than three kilometres uh, trying to get into the stadium. And uh, the motivation of the system, obviously, is to comply with COVID-19 safe operating guidelines. But the glitch in the technology means that uh, in between scanning every person that goes into the into the ground on a barcode on an approved app on your phone, there is a 20-second lag. That's what's obviously uh, making huge delays. Uh, fans' feedback. Uh, one Tottenham uh, Hotspur supporter said he, said he found it messy, an annoying system that basically means that if unless you get unless you've got a spare two hours to get to uh, kick off um, before, obviously um, you're knackered. Um, that's the view of the fans. They're saying it's farcical. It'll be interesting to see whether these teething problems uh, continue or whether they'll get sorted out. But if you have a look on social media, there's some images from every stadium right around England. Um, queues, just massive queues. Back in the day uh, when I started supporting uh, Arsenal and had my season ticket edge, we had just a booklet and you just had uh, games 1 to 19 and you would just simply walk in, tear that stub out, hand it to the bloke and then you would walk straight in. And that's how that's how easy it was to get into the clock end back in about 19... 19- 96 so yeah maybe they need to have a re a rethink on that one uh looking to the games coming up dino we've spoken about man city versus arsenal there are some other standout games starting with liverpool versus chelsea this is probably the biggest game of the season so far it's obviously 3v2 so um yeah like, i mean liverpool at home um chelsea having a good start and i think it's going to be a really entertaining game and uh who knows um yeah, I think it could be end up in a draw. Yeah, and just quickly on the uh, championship, Dino, uh, the, the the thing kind of cruising into life as as we love to see the Fulham West Brom Stoke at the top. There, brilliant goal from Stoke by the way last weekend. If you haven't seen it, yeah, check it check it out. The stunning goal. A nil nil for Derby as they maintain their um, their grind in this league and we'll be talking about it in stoppage time Dino but of course um, Derby will play Nottingham Forest I mean yeah what a, game, what, a, what a game to stick the boot in what do you think well they're in a bit of world of pain I have spoken to Johnny B and uh, he's not a really happy chappy at the moment so uh, I'd love to like get another three points and push us up to uh, knocking on the door of the top six <laughs> We'll have to keep an eye on that one, but we will be talking about derbies uh, in in stoppage time. Edge will be pleased to hear that Birmingham hit five at Luton, so a great start uh, for the Blue Noses. Um, Sheffield United lingering there on one point. I don't want to talk about them every week, but it is uh, looking very, very ominous, a, a poor start, and I already feel like I've been too generous with my um, predictions for the season, Dino. Sheffield yes, United. yes, I know. Um, but I, I've got them in the top six as well, so I think we're all we're all we're all subject to it. I think <laughs> plenty of European action, which we won't unfortunately have time to get into. But um, Serie A started at the weekend. Inter opened up with a four-nil thrashing of uh, Gen- Genoa, and um, Tammy Abraham made a, a, a good winning start uh, for Jose Mourinho and Roma. Um, we, we are going to cover what happened in League 1 uh, in uh, stoppage time as well, but it was fireworks on and off the pitch in that league. And um, Rob, as a hand back over to you, um, by Munich ever, the professionals uh, playing fifth-tier Bremer SV in the German Cup decided that they would beat them just the 12-0. 
their biggest win for 24 years. So no danger of them taking their foot off the throat against some uh, very mediocre opposition and Chipo Moting scoring four. Um, so there you go. Just uh, coupled with uh, Southampton's 8-0 win at um, Newport County during the week, there is no mercy from the big sides. No, not at all. Well, it's Wobayan, Abayan, and uh, they will ever be thus. Okay, boys, uh, nice uh, chat there, but stick around. We are going to talk derbies in stoppage time after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal This is Box to Box on 9 Radio NTS News Talk Sports. The fourth official's given us about seven minutes left for stoppage time. We are going to talk derbies, our favourite derbies, in a moment. But before we do, our good friends at Storage King, they have just been awarded a fantastic award from Canstar Blue, the most satisfied customer award winner for 2021. They were rated five stars for value for money, safety and security, quality of storage and convenience. They've got contactless move-in. Storage King will keep you safe as the things you store. So visit storageking.com.au and let Storage King give you back some space if you're decluttering you just need more space get along to storage king they are the kings of storage moving and more okay gentlemen it's been a great show um i don't know where to put my finger on the highlights but uh, let's wrap it up with um a discussion on derbies i, I know that the i say nice derby is not uh, uh, a derby uh, that we want to see repeated too often but uh, derbies are synonymous with football around the world we love derbies at the best of times when they're played for all the passion and intensity that uh, that local rivalries bring and do you know there, there's uh, a lot of big derbies but the derby the derby are involved in is the one that uh, that is your favorite isn't it Oh, look, it is. It's um, obviously been brought up in Nottingham, um, but obviously born in Wales. Uh, but that was a very, very fleeting uh, moment, three or four days, and I was back in Nottingham. Um, growing up in Nottingham was, you know, tough for me because obviously I went to school there and nobody really liked Derby. I think I was the only kid at school that really did. So the 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 rivalry is massive and um you know it's only about 16 miles from from port to port uh, just up the uh, the motorway and 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 obviously my dad uh, playing for both forest and then you know breaking the transfer record of 100,000 110,000 pound it was when Brian Clough decided to sign him and and there's been plenty of plenty of players that have moved from derby to Forest and vice versa, so it's a massive, uh, a massive rivalry, and uh, hopefully the game on the weekend will be exciting, and uh, and hopefully Derby get a win. Yeah, that's. Uh, it, I mean, this discussion really does warrant a far longer uh, conversation than than uh, just the eight minutes we've got allowed. But uh, yeah, well, great way to start, Dino. The Eredivisie, Willem, uh, your Dutch heritage. Yes, I've been assigned the Eredivisie, Rob, and the three most successful sides across the. Uh, the non-professional and the Eredivisie era, PSV, with their 24 titles, Ajax 35 and Feyenoord 15. So any combination of those three sides uh, is obviously a big rivalry. Ajax and Feyenoord play uh, De Classica, I believe it's called. There's also uh, Groningen and Hurdenvein who play the Derby van het Norden, which is the Derby of the North. But in my three years now with Box to Box, uh, there is one derby that I've heard about, which is apparently essential viewing. It is the Steel City derby, Michael Edgley. Sheffield Wednesday against Sheffield United. You brought back a few stories from that one. 
Yeah, well, absolutely. The Steel City derby, not that it's played in the Eredivisie, so we'll jump over to England uh, uh, and uh, the Premier League. Um, Derek, um, Jesus, a few derbies uh, um, over the journey in that great competition. Yeah, I'd love to say it's Arsenal, Tottenham. I mean, there is definitely an edge as you're walking up to the uh, to the ground, a crackle in the uh, in the air. Um, but it really has to be Manchester United versus uh, Liverpool. Um, geographical proximity, cultural differences, but it also really comes down to canals. Um, back in the day, Liverpool was the main port of uh, that part of the world and Manchester decided that it didn't want to give all the money to Liverpool and built its own canal system from Chester um, uh, to Manchester and bypassed Liverpool altogether. So the fiery rivalry actually comes from, from that and when those two play, you do really know about it. Yeah, that's history. And, uh, of course, we know there is another derby, which we did mention earlier on, the Old Firm derby um, uh, this weekend, which our own Postacoglu will be in. So uh, we are not focusing on that game. But, Edge, um, you, you've you got a passion for Greek football. Uh, you love football all around the world, but uh, uh, you, you played for Alexandros uh, at Heidelberg and uh, uh, you really learn a lot about the Greek culture back in those days. So uh, what's, what's the biggest Greek derby? Well, it's the derby of the eternal enemies, Rob, or they some call it the mother of all battles, and it's the Athens derby, Olympiakos and, of course, Pathanaikos. They are the red and white versus the greens, uh, and also a bit of a socio-economic divide between these two clubs in Athens. Um, Athens, they say, gave us the Olympic Games and Euros, but they also gave us the derby of the eternal enemies, and it's a great match, makes for great television, and um, the odd flare gets thrown mm-hmm. onto the pitch, Rob. Yeah, one or two. Uh, it looks like everybody who turns up there ends up uh, at a here with a flare in their hand. Um, so, look, I'm going to bring it home, um, as you probably expect me to do with uh, City R, the Italian derbies. I mean, there's so many in, in any competition, of course. Uh, in Italy, there's uh, there's the Roma versus Napoli, the, the Derby del Sol, the Derby of the South. There's the Inter versus Juventus, the Derby d'Italia between probably the two or the two most successful clubs in the competition. There's uh, Lazio versus Roma, the uh, the Derby del Capitale. Um, but uh, the one that um, I'm going to put my finger on is is the uh, the, uh, the Derby della Madonnina, the uh, AC Milan versus Inter Milan, the, the working class versus the bourgeoisie. The, one of the reasons I really like this Derby is because it's not born out of, of hatred of the ultras uh, who uh, uh, often take over the, these derbies. It's, it, it is one of the premier clubs in European football. Both clubs share the San Siro. It's named after the little Madonna that sits on the top of the Duomo, the cathedral in the, the centre of Milan. And uh, there have just been some classic clashes over the years. Uh, in a head-to-head 228 games, Inter hold the advantage, 84 wins. Uh, uh, you see Milan 77 and, and 67 draws. It's the only uh, derby in, Ita- in Italian football where two Champions League winners feature. Uh, there are just so many stories to tell but uh, in uh, CDR I'm picking AC versus Inter as the, uh, the, the the most hotly contested derby but I know there will be plenty of Italian listeners pulling their hair out saying no nah, that's not it anyway that's my judgment alright boys well done with uh, with your assessments we might have to put another entire segment aside for this um, Dino well done mate thank you yeah thank you alright mate Willem thank you again great stuff thank you guys have a good week Derek Until next time. Thanks, gents. At Edge. Thanks, Rob. Until we go 
on the pitch, Again. from one end of the pitch to <laughs> the other. You're stealing my line. <laughs> I haven't even said goodbye to Damo. Thank you, Damo. He can't hear us. He's not on the mic. But what a, what a great fun show. Um, if you enjoyed it, please tell your friends, share it uh, and like it on your social media platforms. And yes, as Edge was saying, join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.